Welcome to the Denver Community Church Teaching Podcast. Whether you attend our 10 a.m. gathering on Sundays here in Denver, are just checking us out, or listen every week from far away, our hope is that by engaging with Scripture, together we can explore and participate in the life of Jesus so that we can be a healing presence in our world. As you listen to this teaching, allow it to begin a conversation between you and God, you and the Bible, and you and your community. If you have any questions about DCC or this teaching, you can email us at info at denverchurch.org. To get connected or find out more about what's going on in and around our community, you can visit our website at denverchurch.org or download our app by searching Denver Community Church in the App Store. And if you want to financially support the healing work we are doing as we invest in our community while setting aside 20% of every dollar given to support our partners locally and around the globe, you can text the words Denver Church to 77977. That's Denver Church to 77977. Know that spaces like ours can only exist through the radical generosity of those who call DCC home. Thank you for being here. Let's get to the teaching. Good morning. I don't know how to follow that. Lots of activity. Um, hey, just before we get started, uh, I want to share something with you about what, 20, what you have all done in 2023. Um, many of you know that 20% of every dollar that is given uh, goes directly to Project Renew, which is our peacemaking and justice initiative here at DCC. Um, and sometimes it's more than 20% because if you recall in February at one of our Sunday gatherings we gave money specifically uh, for Afghan families who were in hiding for their lives and we had a way to get them out of Afghanistan to safety and uh, on that particular Sunday alone you gave somewhere around the neighborhood of $89,000 yeah so so far this year we've given about $359,000 total um, and here's, I have a list of the things because I couldn't remember it. Um, it you provided services and shelter and clothing to, uh, and, uh, and food to our unhoused neighbors. Uh, I already mentioned the Afghan, Afghan families who were in hiding from the Taliban. You got them to safety. Uh, we helped rebuild homes and livelihoods in the wake of the Marshall Fire that happened a couple of years ago up in the Boulder area. Uh, walked alongside migrant families. We assisted them with housing and jobs and provided legal representation. Uh, We broke ground on a school in the poorest neighborhood in Nairobi in Kenya that will serve over 500 students, provided grants for DC Sears for for the practical needs of their neighbors, provided mental health support and spiritual direction for our ministry partners, offered benevolence funds to our friends who are in need here who are part of this congregation, provided safety to vulnerable women and uh, child refugees in Uganda, Uh, made a dent in the battle for affordable housing here in the city of Denver, provided financial stability for our Haitian siblings as they reclaimed ravaged ecosystems uh, in their farms, provided hundreds of households in El Salvador with clean drinking water. And the last bullet point is my favorite. This is an email that came to me and said, "Um, we did all of this in in more ways that I can list here. Pretty great, isn't it? This is what you've done. Yeah, you should applaud. And not only that, but we, one 
of the things that we've asked for over the last several weeks is for people to spend time volunteering during Christmas Eve, our Christmas Eve gatherings. More than 60 of you have committed to do that. We still need a few more. But one of the things that we continually see here at Denver Community Church is not just your financial generosity, but the generosity that you have with your gifts and with your time and with your talent. And so as we approach the end of the year, we want to say thank you for all that you have done and thank you for how you will continue to give and continue to serve through the end of this year and in the year to come. So with that said, let's pray and then we'll jump into our time of teaching. Uh, God, we recognize the one thing that we see Jesus continually point to and celebrate is generosity. And I'm humbled as I stand here this morning because I do so in a room filled with people who continue to show generosity, who continue to help those who are in places of difficulty. And so we just begin this morning by saying thank you. Thank you for the way you have prompted so many in this community to give, to give sacrificially and to give generously. We pray these things together in the strong name of Jesus. And all my friends said, amen. All right. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. If you've been with us, you know we've been looking at what we've referred to as the shadows of Christmas. Advent is typically a season associated with light, but one of the things we recognize is that light casts shadows, and what can we learn from the shadows? I'll begin reading in Matthew chapter 2 in verse 13. It says, when they, referring to the Magi, also known as the wise men in more popular folklore, when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up and took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I had called my son. When Herod realized he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time that he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in, G in Egypt and said, Get up and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now Matthew, when it comes to the telling of his Christmas story, seems to just jump right into the thick of it. The story preceding the verses that we just read tell us that Herod the Great was the ruling king in Judea and that Magi from the east came and said, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? We've come to worship him and we followed his star and we found him here. Herod pretends like he also wants to worship except for the fact that Herod's title was also king of the Jews. So what the Magi shared with him was actually a threat. And so he said to the Magi, hey, when you find 
this child, make sure to tell me so I can go and worship. But the Magi are warned in a dream that, that they need to leave right away, and so they take off. This infuriates Herod, and he kills all these children. When I say that Matthew jumps right into the thick of it, at the beginning of Matthew's story, right away he names Herod. Now, I know some of us are familiar with Herod. And we're familiar with Herod not because of the great things he did, but because of the brutal and notorious despot he was. Herod, who called himself a Jewish person, Herod, whose title was king of the Jews, often resorted to other tactics to execute political dissidents out of step with what was okayed in the Jewish law, which meant that he dismembered people, he tortured people, he burned people, he decapitated people. And not only did Herod do that to his enemies, Herod was also known for killing many of his family members. On one trip that he was taking where he was going to be gone a long time, he knew that his brother-in-law was quite popular with the people. And Herod was a little bit afraid that maybe in his absence his brother-in-law would ascend to power and have the approval of his people that he was ruling over. And so he killed his brother-in-law just to make sure that he would remain in power. After returning from that same trip, he suspected that one of his wives was unfaithful to him without any proof. And so he had her killed. And then his sons the ones whose mother was just killed were upset. And so he had two of them drowned in his palatial pool in Jericho. And then five days before his own death, he had another one of his sons strangled to death. This is why Caesar Augustus said of Herod, it's safer to be his swine than his children. So when Matthew begins by naming Herod the Great, in that time frame, everyone knew the kind of person he was. He was brutal and he was awful. And so when we le learn about the slaughtering of children, that's in keeping with his reputation. It's also the thing that makes Joseph and Mary have to run for their lives to save their son. And even when they return, it doesn't seem to get better. We learn that Joseph is scared of Archelaus, with good reason. Archelaus, some suggest, was worse than his father, Herod. As soon as Herod died, Archelaus sped off to Rome so that he could get the blessing of Caesar himself, like his father did, and retain the title king of the Jews, and then rule and reign in Judea. While he was gone, however, a lot of skirmishes broke out. So Archelaus, as quick as he went to Rome, went back to Judea with the same speed and restored order, in his words, which means he just started slaughtering thousands of people so that he could establish his power in Judea. Archelaus was so brutal that the Samaritans and the Jewish people, typically those who never got along, actually came together and appealed to Rome to have Archelaus deposed because of his brutality. And they won the appeal, and eventually Archelaus was exiled by Rome into northern Europe where he died. This is how Matthew begins his Christmas story. Is it any wonder why we like Luke's story so much better? I mean, Luke's story, come on. 
You've got Joseph and Mary, and they're just holding each other, and they're looking at their beautiful baby boy wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And then there's like the cherub-faced, rosy-cheeked shepherds out in the field with their perfectly groomed sheep because that's the way it was in the first century. And angels appear to them, and they're singing glory to God in the highest, and the shepherds go into the barn where Jesus is, and it's just like this idyllic picture of what we want Christmas to be. But Luke also doesn't really sanitize the story. He's just a little bit more subtle, because this is how Luke begins his Christmas story. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Caesar and Roman. Now, the people of Israel had long lived with the boot of occupation and oppression on their neck by the global military superpower that we call Rome. They understood what it meant to not live free lives. They referred to themselves as slaves in their own land. So when Luke begins by speaking of Caesar Augustus, if there's word association going on in the minds of the Jewish people in the first century, what they're hearing about is not this great person, but someone who personifies the oppression that they lived beneath. The Roman Empire was a military superpower, and they rarely took prisoners. And if you were a political dissident, they would execute you most often by crucifixion. One of the most torturous forms of death ever conceived. And then there's the phrase that Luke uses, that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. If you've ever read the Hebrew Scriptures or the Old Testament, you know the place where the people of Israel lived was not the Roman world. It was their world. It was their culture. It was their language. It was their religious tradition. But like so many other countries that Rome occupied, they lost all of those freedoms. And now what they had is called the Roman world. Now, I know for many of us seated here this morning, it's hard for us even to begin to fathom or imagine what it would be like to live through this sort of thing that Caesar put the people of Israel through, that Herod, who was endorsed by Caesar Augustus himself, what he put his people through. I certainly can't imagine. However, I'm not that far removed from it. Many of you know that my father is a Cuban refugee, a Cuban exile. He used to call himself a Cuban immigrant. But that all changed starting about 15 years ago when he finally went and began to address the trauma that he experienced in his life when at the age of 15, his parents got him out of the country to get to the United States with only $5 left in his pocket. Now, just in case you're wondering what my father looks like, here we go. That's him at the age of four. Really cute, isn't he? Uh, that's him at the age of 13 when the revolution kind of came to Havana. Now, I know some of you are thinking, is that your mom? No. He doesn't even look happy to be dancing in that picture. He, he actually told me, and this does describe my dad well, 
that he was at a dance and no one was dancing with that girl. And so he said to his friends, I'm going to go dance with her. I did ask him after looking at that picture for a long time why his belt buckle is over on his left hip. And he's like, that's how all the cool kids are wearing it. And I was like, Dad, I don't think they were cool, but whatever. So years ago, my dad finally experienced healing around leaving his country, his home. And so I asked him, I said, hey, I'll fly you out to Denver because I want to hear the whole story. Because there's so many gaps in it, so many parts that I had never heard. I want to hear the whole thing. I want you to even tell me about your grandparents. And so in 2018, he came out, and for 10 hours, we sat, and I recorded the entire conversation, and he told me his story beginning with my great-grandparents all the way through to him coming to the United States and marrying my mom and having six kids, the youngest being the best. <laughs> if you're wondering, yes, I'm the youngest. That's why it was a joke. But the most sobering part of the story, stuff that I had never heard, was when he talked about what began to happen when Castro and his minions were in the southeastern part in the mountains of Cuba, and they were sending radio broadcasts into Havana daily. And he said, we used to have dinner at night with the windows open, and we began hearing the bombs go off, where those who were loyal to Castro would take a backpack into a movie theater and leave it and walk away. And he said, day after day, the bombing it grew more and more and more that we began to hear gunfire at times. He told me that when he was 13, just like he is in this picture, that Castro's soldiers came into his classroom and across the harbor from where his school was, there was a, is a castle that still stands where they executed over 3,500 political prisoners by firing squad. The courtroom was at the castle, and if you were guilty, you were walked right out, no chance for an appeal. And he said, at this age, they made the students watch live, on live television, executions by firing squads. And he described it to me in detail, detail that I'm honestly not going to share with you because it's so deeply troubling about what he experienced. He said, kids in my classroom used to urinate and defecate out of their fear while watching these videos. And then the soldiers would look at each and every kid and say, this is what happens if you oppose Fidel. He talked about how people, friends of the family, would disappear and they never knew where they went. He talked about not beginning to not know who to trust because some people said, well, if you can't beat them, join them. And then came the day when my dad was putting some, uh, at the age of 15, doing some graffiti that had some choice words about Castro on a wall, and he got caught doing that, and he was imprisoned in a literal dungeon in an old Spanish castle, and he disappeared for four to five days. You can imagine how his parents felt when he finally turned up again on their doorstep, and that's when they said, you are leaving. When my dad talked to me about the Cuba that he grew up in versus the Cuba that exists now and the Cuba that he saw fall and the violence and the bloodshed, I sat there and thought, we can read these stories in the Bible as though it's like some distant, removed world, but I think what everyone was experiencing on that night that Jesus was born is a lot like what my dad experienced. And the Bible doesn't sanitize it the Bible doesn't avoid it. The Bible doesn't ignore it. The Bible doesn't wish it away. It actually jumps headlong into it, which is one of the things I love about the Bible. 
You can't read the Bible and accuse the authors of denial or avoidance. The Bible represents the full range of human experience, telling all of us that God knows how it feels. And what have we done in response when it comes to Christmas? Hallmark movies. I think there's a theme. Um, I'm not sure. You know that they're just using the same template for everything. All they're doing, actually, they're not even changing the bodies. They're just Photoshopping new heads in, apparently. (laughs) Now, if you don't know anything about Hallmark movies, here's the plot. Typically, there's a woman who's a little bit disgruntled with life in the big city. She moves to a small town, and she has no friends until she befriends a handsome stranger. Some of you are like, that's also the plot of every true crime podcast I've ever heard in my life. (laughs) But there's just these feel-good movies that like offer simple solutions to complex problems in 90 minutes. And we, we watch them and we're like, oh, this is the best. No, it's not, actually. It's terrible. But it just gives us a little bit of escape and allows us to be a little bit happy and just kind of forget about life for a while, I suppose. And I just thought, what an apt metaphor for us in Christmas. I mean, so many of us, we just seem to live in denial in this season, you know, and it offers a lot of ways for us to kind of escape, whether it's like nonstop Christmas parties where we can drown ourselves in eggnog. Maybe it's retail therapy. I mean, after all, we're not buying the gifts for us, so, you know, we can go shopping and stay busy. Just yesterday, my, my family and I went down to the, one of the Christmas markets downtown. And there was one part of the line that, I'm not kidding, there had to be three to 400 people in it. And I looked, I'm like, oh, that's the beer booth. That explains things. Also a good metaphor. We can just kind of ignore things, can't we? I mean, in this time of year, who wants to hear the bad news? And so many of us have the privilege to actually not hear the bad news. And so if we hear about Gaza and Israel, or we hear about the ongoing war in Ukraine, or we hear about the housing crisis here locally, you know what we can do? Turn that off and turn on some Christmas music, and voila, everything feels different. But not everyone can do that. Because as hard as we might want to try to avoid and deny and just kind of pretend things aren't there, you can only run so far for so long before all the things you don't want to catch up with you eventually do catch up with you. I say that, by the way, from experience. I don't know if you're aware, but I'm the kind of person that I like to have fun. Like, I'm a blast. And I'm hilarious. I promise you. In college, I earned the nickname Fun Bobby. Please don't look that up on Urban Dictionary to figure out what that means. I mean, I suppose like during this time of year, we could say I'm a frolicsome chap. Jovial and jaunty, impish. I love it. And it comes in really handy to be that kind of personality when things go wrong. Because I'll tell you what, I would much rather have a good time than tend to my grief. I am much, much, much more well acquainted with laughter than I am tears. 
And I could tell you endless stories about my life where when things have gotten difficult, I have done certain things to escape and have so much fun. But I'll tell you what, as good as I am at that, what I've realized is it doesn't work. If we ignore pain, the pain doesn't go away. In fact, the pain seems to deepen and grow and become a bigger problem. And the reality is, for some reason, this time of year kind of puts all of the things that we've been ignoring or maybe trying to ignore up in our face in a way that I can't explain. I know there are some of you here that are a part of this faith community where this Christmas you've had a relationship that has long been strained and somehow in the last few weeks or months it's hit a breaking point. And so on Christmas Day, you're going to set one less place setting at your dinner table. You can't ignore it because the person who's not there has always been there. Some of you are here and you've been faced with a diagnosis that you never saw coming. And no matter what you do, no matter how you try to plan or think about it, it always seems to be like right in the center of your vision and you just can't see past it. Some of you are here and you're in a financially difficult place. Some of you have applied for job after job after job after job and nothing seems to be surfacing and you're facing the end of the year and looking in the next year wondering, how am I actually even going to afford to live in a place like this? And some of you are facing this year and it's your first time since the death of a loved one. And no matter what you do on Christmas, there's this pronounced thing of like, they're not here. And whatever it is, that first celebration, those first holidays, all of those firsts have a special kind of pain and a special kind of sorrow. So what, what do we do when running and denying and avoiding when it no longer works? How, what do we do? Well, maybe one thing we can do is read the Gospels. Read Matthew chapter 2 and read Luke chapter 2. Only to remind ourselves that they don't sanitize anything. In fact, what it teaches us is that God himself plunges headlong into the pain and into the sorrow and into the oppression and into the midst of suffering and doing so vulnerably. Maybe we can remind ourselves that this season that we celebrate, that we try to make so joyful, actually exists because the world wasn't always so joyful. N.T. Wright speaks about this, and here's what he says. For many, Christianity is just a beautiful dream. It's a world in which everyday reality goes a bit blurred. It's nostalgic, cozy, and comforting. But real Christianity isn't like that at all. Take Christmas, for instance, a season of nostalgia, of carols and candles and firelight and happy children, but that misses the point completely. Christmas is not a reminder that the world is really quite a nice old place. It reminds us that the world is a shockingly bad old place where wickedness flourishes unchecked, where children are murdered, where civilized countries make a lot of money by selling weapons to uncivilized ones so they can blow each other apart. Christmas is God lighting a candle. And you don't light a candle in a room that's already full of sunlight. 
You light a candle in a room that's so murky that the candle when lit reveals just how bad things really are. Christmas is not a dream, a moment of escapism. Christmas is the reality which shows up the rest of reality. I've actually shared this quote before. And as I was preparing for this teaching, one of the things that came to me was this quote, and I thought, you know what? I think sometimes what we do, metaphorically speaking, is we try to pretend like every room is filled with daylight. So who cares if we, a candle is lit? I mean, we already lit some candles here this morning. They're not doing anything to give us any light. They're not utilitarian. They're symbolic. Who cares? If I blew them out, none of us would say, I can't see anything. And sometimes I think this is what we do around Christmas. We just try to fill every room we're in with light, so much so that we can ignore the candle that was lit. And this is one of the things I love about Matthew's gospel, is he says, no, you can only see the light when you're in the shadows. As a matter of fact, the light is what causes the shadows to exist. Stand in the shadows. Don't run from them. Don't try to fill everything up. Because if you do, you're going to miss that flickering candle. Brian Swim, a cosmologist, has this similar idea when talking about the stars. He says this, the stars shine always. They fill the sky both day and night. But night is a time free from daily scattered distractions. Night is a time when the presence of the stars can be more deeply felt, when the news of the universe can be deeply attended to. For what was invisible as we dashed from one errand to another suddenly stands out, magically present, no longer willing to be ignored. And I wonder, is it possible that if we were more honest about the shadows in which we stand, Maybe what we begin to recognize that there is, is that there is a candle that refuses to be ignored. That this is what the holiday actually is. It's this candle that's flickering that almost seems like at any moment it could go out. But one that we can see with much greater clarity when we allow ourselves when we give ourselves permission to say, no, we're going to recognize the shadows, and not only that, we're going to stand in them. You see, in some ways, we can celebrate the Christmas story with ease because we often look at it as a story that happened at some point 2,000 years ago. But in some ways, I think the gospel writers are inviting us into this story that this is what Advent does, is that we're waiting for our king to be born again. That we're saying this is not just a story that happened, it's a story that continues to happen. And it's a story that we are a part of. That yes, there are still shadows, they're just different circumstances. And yes, that candle is still lit. And yes, we can still see it flickering, even in the midst of our troubles. And my prayer 
for so many of you who are approaching this season with a heavy and hurting heart is that you would have eyes to see the candle that is still lit and is still burning and that you would hear that candle shout in the cries of a newborn infant, God is with us. Let's pray together. God, we know that this season for some reason seems to just drudge up things within us. That even though we might be here and we might be celebrating and be filled with joy, there's something that seems to swim just beneath the surface that impacts us all in a way. I ask that you would keep our hearts tender toward one another. I ask that you would allow us to see clearly the candle that's been lit. That you would give us the courage to no longer deny or avoid, but that you would cause us to tend to the ache that so many of us have within us. We thank you that in the midst of these moments that can feel so heavy and so difficult, that you do not stand far off, but that you are there, right there, in the midst of them. We pray these things together in the strong name of Jesus. And all my friends said, amen. As we continue our time together, as we always do, we're going to participate in Eucharist. Eucharist is a, is a meal. It's a way of remembering Jesus' death and resurrection. And we do this because Jesus said, do this whenever you're together in remembrance of me. The early Christians used to call this the love feast. And they used to call it communion because it's something that we do together because we realize we all need this. This is why here at Denver Community Church, we say this is not our table, it's Jesus' table, which means everyone is invited to come and to participate and to eat together. And so we ask that as you're ready, that you would come. There'll be two stations here and two on the side. If you want to come to these stations, we ask that you'd use the center aisle. If you'd like to use the ones on the side, we ask that you would go down the sides along the wall and return to your seats using the diagonal aisles. And as we prepare to participate together, hear these words from the Gospel of Matthew. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. You may come as you're ready.